Milenko Matanovich on the U.S.-Mexico border. We were there to confer with a couple of dozen other citizen artists from both countries to explore the audacious idea of creating a common ground cultural space that literally straddled that border physically and creatively. The aim was to establish a creative laboratory for arts-based strategies for changing borders from dividers to cross-community connectors. Not just for North America, but for the whole world. Like I said, it was audacious. Anyway, one amazing outcome of that memorable gathering was that one of the two countries actually indicated it was interested in this crazy idea. I'll leave it to your imagination to figure out which one opted out. Another important outcome was the birth of the Pomegranate Center, which has served as the platform for Malenko's community collaborations for the past three decades. In the decades since that border summit, I've come to know that challenging assumptions, poking holes in the impossible, and good times for all are all hallmarks for Malenko's way in the world. As an artist and designer, as a writer, speaker, as a teacher and philosopher, as an organizer and provocateur, Malenko Matanovich, above all, is a hands-on maker and doer. A creator on a lifelong journey to help communities realize what he views as the real American dream, grassroots democracy. Our conversation took place in February of 2020, just as the gathering storm of the pandemic was appearing on the horizon. Part one, an American dream. I'd like to dive in and, first of all, begin with your describing what your work is. My, my work now is to think about the invisible currents that are moving through our society and try to answer the question, how can a, a democracy work better? Uh, so I'm interested in questions that are much more than questions of an artist, a traditional artist, um, would ask. I think that something is happening in our society that should be worrisome. And, and I'm trying to look at that now that I, I have the privilege of more free time and uh, reading and researching and talking with my colleagues like yourself. Something is going on. I'm trying to understand what it is, and I'm trying to uh, provide some answers. So uh, given that there's a long history that preceded this particular moment where you are in, in a space where you can reflect, could you describe how you came to this and just a bit of your history and obviously touching bases on your, on your artistic career, but also the, the time you spent in the trenches at the Pomegranate Center? Sure. I'll go way back. I grew up in former Yugoslavia in a truly remarkable city with roots going back 2,000 years. A kind of city where you walk and feel safe and you, you explore all the time and you bump into friends. Uh, architecturally, designed all around the principles of placemaking because it was intuitive to the people who built that place. It's not by coincidence, Bill, that we had to invent the term placemaking because it was lacking here. It was not needed in that city. Uh, so uh, great, great memories of the city, great memories of spending summer times in a tiny village that basically existed in a pre-industrial 
fashion when I first visited it. But the society itself was a little bit foggy. It was like people were covered with heavy blankets. And the joyfulness, the lightness, the excitement about the future, the optimism, creativity, all those were qualities lacking from the daily uh, culture that I bumped into. And I had a sense early on that something was wrong with that picture. Uh, you know, I think in retrospect, the leaders, political leaders in former Yugoslavia worked very hard to keep an arranged marriage between different cultural groups uh, going. Uh, and that all exploded, as you, we know, uh, in, in those atrocities after a hard hand of Tito disappeared. I, I was born only three years after the, the end of the Second World War, so my early memories was of very humble existence. Um, you know, we turned off the lights because if police would see lights in two rooms from the street, they would knock on your doors. Uh, the energy was so precious. Memories that everybody was trying to, to tell me who I should be and who I should become and how to behave. And I rebelled against that. Uh, I looked with envy across the Atlantic Ocean to the United States. And I said to myself, here is a country where people deliberate their future together. Uh, they go to town halls and they float different ideas. They wisely select the best ideas. And they join their forces to, to make them happen. You know, that was the, the idealistic perception of healthy democracy. And I had this yearning for that state of affairs because it was utterly lacking, lacking in, in my, my early experience. Nobody ever asked me what I thought. So you became an, an artist. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. That's led me to the only place where I, I could go and still keep some kind of integrity with myself. And I was very lucky to bump into friends who were thinking similar thoughts. Uh, long story short, I, I ended up working with a collaborative of artists called Group Oho, O-H-O, which is kind of a combination of two Slovenian words, Oko for eye and Uho for ear. And we, we said that's kind of the media in which we'll be working. Uh, the, sen uh, the senses will engage. But I think, you know, I started in a very traditional way. I, I painted and I started to make some sculptures. But in, uh, then one summer, I discovered a different approach that shaped my entire career afterwards. Everybody was making objects, and what was the most important is the object that they were created. And I scratched my head and said, what if I start playing by different rules, which is that I will always try to learn from the setting first, and then I will do something that highlights the setting rather than boasts my own genius. And so this idea of collaboration has been with me for a very, very long time. Uh, and that, but that was a kind of a conscious beginning of that journey. So could you talk about some of this work, share some examples of how it actually placed the setting in the foreground? Okay, so I used the simplest of materials, like wooden sticks and string, connecting them together into a long snake and put them on top of the river. They would float on the river 
and start visualizing the invisible currents that were under the surface of the river. So, so what kind of art is that? It's an art that highlights something in a relationship, right? It's not Milenko putting sticks in the river. It's highlighting what was there already. So this idea that collaboration it can be expressed in any way, not just between people, but between an artist and a river. I catch summer jobs in a print shop, and I would beg them to sell me discarded roll of newspaper paper, you know, about maybe 400 feet long. And I would take it to the rolling hills and unfold it, and the gravity of the hills would start shaping this pathway. So again, is art the paper? No, the paper was just a, a method to highlight something inherent in a situation that I found. And then you left Slovenia to expand on these ideas, but your idealistic view of the U.S. didn't exactly pan out, did it? When I came to the United States, I was shocked to discover cities lacking those qualities that I became familiar with and become became second nature to me in Ljubljana. Walk, walkability, fresh food, uh, bumping into friends, a sense of community, all that was lacking in uh, many cities that were designed much better for cars than for people. And so that shocked me. And, and the other thing that shocked me is that when I would go and start to attend public meetings, I remember the very first one I attended in the United States had to do with widening a bicycle path on the shoulder of a, a street. And I went there because I was a bicyclist and I wanted to learn how true democracy works, uh, right? And I was shocked to discover that it was dominated by few very, very selfish people whose argument it was that they would not want to widen their road because we just don't want bicyclists uh, obstructing our entryway on the road when we exit from our fancy homes. And so your bubble burst, but it didn't deter you, did it? Instead, you went into inquiry mode, into problem-solving mode, right? And so that piqued my interest. How come there was such a discrepancy between the ideals of participatory democracy and the reality. And eventually that started to really dominate my work. So even as we built artistic projects with Pomegranate, we had to learn how to convene meetings in a different way that downplayed those negative, selfish tendencies that I saw that have become the norm and highlight creativity and forward-looking uh, and thinking on behalf of future generations. And that's became gradually my main work, how to design processes where people step up to their better selves. And so, as I said at the beginning, what is my work? That's my work now, to, to ask myself, under what conditions can we rise to, to our better selves? Because right now, the default uh, modality is that we are at our worst with each other. And that troubles me because it, it, we are robbing ourselves of the possibility to understand, first of all, the complexities of our time, and second of all, to prepare ourselves for a future that would work for all of us. So that's kind of how I evolved through, through this long journey of more than 50 years. Part two, gathering. So one of the things that has always attracted me to the work of the Pomegranate Center is the fact that every time an idea emerges, 
there's actually a story of the experience of working in communities with people who may seem skeptical at first, but actually end up taking responsibility for not only the ideas, but the manifestation of those ideas. And one of them that I was particularly enamored of was the one in San Diego, which really was a very compressed period of time. And a lot of people in a neighborhood who didn't necessarily know each other very well, who did some amazing projects. Could you talk a little bit about the on the ground experience of helping people really find a sense of common ground and taking responsibility for it? So that's basically been the model for pomegranate centers work with gathering places. Um, and the method is very simple. So unlike a young artist in Slovenia, where I was the only one in charge of what was I was going to do, here I had to become a kind of artist that will say, I will serve the desires of the community. And in order for me to do that, I had to trust their input. I could not just serve their anger and their negativity, right? So, so the contract we created with the community is you tell us what needs to happen, but in the process, can you be honest with your ideas and what really ought to happen here rather, rather than what you do not want to see, which is so often uh, the case. And then we will design it with your help. You have the power of veto, but we promise you that we'll design it around your wishes rather we've learned that there's some architects who would simply not buy into that premise. They knew better. There were specialists who knew better than the community. We, we resisted that temptation and learned how to really pull out to the communities their best sentiments. Actually, another way of engaging people that reinforce the connectedness and interdependence of community. Could you talk a bit about how it actually works? So we had to develop some tools for, for doing that. So ground rules for participation that diminished the negativity. So, for example, simple rules. Everyone would participate. Why did we impose that rule? Because we learned without it, few people would have the tendency to dominate the meeting. Uh, or uh, are you willing to change your mind after you hear other people talk about the project so, so that we diminished people being fixed on their ideas and enhance the idea of learning? So there are tricks to this, and we learn tons about what makes community meetings. In any case, they are driving this rather than us. We design they have the veto power, and then we orchestrate a joint series of day-long workshops. Usually projects would go anywhere from four to ten days, depending on the complexity of the project. And they were expected to work alongside with us. The basic idea was we do not work for you, we work with you. We'll add something to your value, but you need to put the skin in the game also and invest. The reason why it works so well, and we have some, as you mentioned, you are familiar with the project down in San Diego, the Manzanita gathering place. But I think what made it work is that there was something specific at stake. I had the privilege of helping to document the Manzanita gathering place project in San Diego that Malenko is referring to. In many ways, 
This was a prototypical pomegranate center project, a derelict and blighted road end, a concerned community that just wanted to turn it into a safe and beautiful little park where everybody could gather and connect and play. From the city's perspective, this was at a minimum of one year one-half million dollar project. Pomegranate and 200 community volunteers planned, designed, and built it in three months for $20,000. I asked Malenko to share the alchemy that makes something like this possible. So what we've learned is when something specific is at stake, it's easier for people to flip from their differences into what can I contribute kind of a modality, which is powerful. So when it's abstract, we just argue about how we're different. But when something specific in this instance was the safety of kids, that dead end street, which the neighborhood blocked off with a barbed wire, and then this tiny space, 100 square yards, something like that, uh, started to be occupied by um, drug dealers. And everybody knew that, right? There was a, a, an elementary school that used to be accessed through that space until this negative activity started to happen there. So the project was about doing something to transform it from this hole into something exciting and, you know, let's do something beautiful, something functional. And now what they tell me is the community gathers there to watch the sunset because the place is facing west towards the Pacific coast. And they gather there in the evening ritualistically, uh, kind of and bump into each other. How great, right? And the space had to be designed for that kind of an easy encounter. So again, the principle I think here is the community needs to be involved. We Artists do not do it for them, they do it with them. Artists need to accept responsibility that they will be, that they need to put their ego aside. And when they exercise their ego, it's within the framework of what the community wants rather than what the artist wants. And then you invite people to become artists, to turn into construction workers and artisans and craftspeople for a few days, and let's do something together. And that's enough, right? And surprisingly, people step up to their better selves. When we do art together, you know, people are not jerks to each other anymore. It's just something about the activity of that nature you know let's do the mosaic together you cannot argue i would not you know you know you jerk you put this pink piece right here you you kind of say in that context oh that's interesting let me build on it you know is that kind of a feeling starts exploding between people and i think those are the unexpected results so at the end they feel safer with each other more trusting of each other and they're excited to, to be involved again in something similar, right? That's what a powerful, powerful sentiment that is in our cynical times where, where people say, watch me not come to another meeting. Now, Manzanita was a little park project that had a profound impact on a, on a little community, but you see much broader implications in this work. Could you talk about that? And so what I'm learning from that, Bill, I'm now asking the question, can this be applied more broadly beyond our projects to kind of the, the, the way we work between elections when, when decisions about new community garden and new library 
category and your widening of the street and you will whatever is being contemplated. And often there are community meetings there complementing those processes. It's not just professionals and government agencies doing it. There, there is a structured uh, place for people to be involved. Unfortunately, they are involved through negativity. And we are saying kind of, I'm scratching my head and say, wait a minute, there's thousands of those meetings happening every month in the United States. What if we turn them into laboratories for collaboration, for learning from each other, for looking into the future, for all those good qualities that I dreamt about when I was in former Yugoslavia, that to me were what represents a, a, a living, breathing democracy. So in some ways, I'm connecting the dots, you know, over decades of my life. Part three, dance lessons. So. One of the things that was an aspect of your work in San Diego and, and other places since then is that you not only worked with people to build a beautiful, useful place together for their children, but you also trained people from the community in the process that you use. And now Pomegranate Center has devoted itself significantly to trying to pass the pomegranate process on. So a question I have for you is, when you teach, what are some of the key things that you think people need to be aware of or think about as they enter into this kind of democratic, creative work in communities? So, first of all, I want to say that I feel very blessed that my daughter, Katya, who has worked as a volunteer on early pomegranate projects and then graduated to staff member, that she has taken over the running of the organization. And I'm delighted about that. So, she and I teach together, and we probably have about over 1,000 people who went through our program now. There's some things that pop up over and over again. First of all, people realize that, that it's silly not to work with communities, uh, that it's silly to fight them. And so often there is an awkward dance between government representatives and we the people. And that dance expresses itself in kind of a, it's almost like wrestling match. And we try to turn that into a dancing uh, metaphor. Let, let's learn how to dance together. There are new dance steps that we need to learn. So first of all, so first realization is there are more people who know that this is a wise thing to do compared to 10 years ago. Second thing we learn is that some people, unless they think into it and without some prompting, they would not know the difference between recruiting the community and engaging the community. Huge difference between those two concepts. And so, the, the, again, we discover for many people, actually, community engagement means kind of an open house. We will tell you what we're doing. We will not ask you for your thoughts, right? And we, we say later on in the process, that's fine. But at the beginning, the community must be involved. There is a, I call it the poetry of the beginning. There's some, this moment right at the beginning when the meaning of the project is uncovered. What does it mean? Not what it is going to be. What does it mean? And so that's where we're, community must be involved. And that's where the ownership is created. Uh, often we find with government agencies that they rush beyond the poetic into technical too quickly. So we say 
when people now approach us, we say, can you pause and just have everybody participate, whoever wants to participate, to, to understand the field of complex issues that should inform this project. And instead of you deciding what that is, let the community decide. So, so that huge learning needs to happen there. So community engagement in our methodology cannot be real unless you have the question to ask of people who come to the meeting. Otherwise, it's just information session. It's an open house. Be honest. Call it an open house. But don't call it community engagement because you're not engaging. So uh, we always suggest that a smaller group of community representatives and sponsors, could be from government agencies, form what we call a convening group. And that's a tricky premise because we ask the convening group to not make decisions but help with the integrity of the process, to provide local knowledge about how the process can succeed. And we as facilitators at Palm Grant Center, we're purely interested in the integrity, purity of the process. But they help us. That's a tricky point because many of them think, oh, I've been selected. Now I have certain powers. Maybe that's a tricky point. And the third tricky point is that every project needs to be designed. And designing, by definition, is taking lots of ideas. In a typical community meeting where everyone participates, I would say anywhere between 50 and 75 ideas surface about different facets of the project. That's a lot of ideas. What do you do with them? And here's this tricky moment where we tell the community, are you okay about playing a relay a little bit that will pass on those ideas to somebody who can come back to you with how this can be designed. And in the process, some of these, your ideas will disappear because you can't have a recipe for a pizza where everything that you suggested should be on the pizza. It, it will create indigestion, right? So, so that is tricky uh, a balance between including people and creating excellence. And unless you're careful, it will slide into control of, of designers or mediocrity of the community, where, because every com- idea is valuable. So this is a tricky thing to negotiate with communities. What I hear you saying is that you're accountable to the community, but you're also asking the community to be accountable to itself, to own both its collective genius, but also the, uh, the give and take and compromise of difficult decisions. So it, uh, I call it, the, it's a making of maple syrup. You, you start with 40 gallons of sap and you end up with one gallon of syrup. The, the design process is it's a little bit like that, right? And if, if community members are too rigid, they will only complain, where did my idea go? So what we had to learn is that the designers need to review every idea. They need to understand the f- complex field of wishes that exist within community and then boil that down and promise to explain it to the community why some things could not happen because the funding would be too costly or ordinances do not allow that or it's not aligned with the criteria for the project with the funding. But that, those are some tricky points along the, the journey that can derail uh, this potentially very beautiful process. And, and few people have the power to derail it 
while it takes everyone to make it work. That's what we discovered. That's kind of the tricky equation for this kind of community-based work that uh, fewer people have much more theoretical power in their hands than everybody together. Part four, making trust. It occurs to me as I hear this, everything that you're describing basically is about, particularly in our time where cynicism and worry about having the, the, the wool pulled over your, your eyes is rampant and that you're really creating an environment in which people practice trust-making Absolutely. Um, on something on something that's that's real, and that and they will they'll bear the consequences of its success or failure at the end of the day because it's in their community. Yep. Uh, and that's why I put lots of faith in face face to face meetings because of that. Because uh, you know, uh, and maybe I was kind of coached by my life experience about how important it is to. Uh, be in the presence of a whole person rather than just their words, which is kind of what what often social media or, you know, surveys often words, but they are detached from the person who is the author behind those words. I think that we need to rebalance that that information overload that we are exposed to now with personal face-to-face and, and carve meaning out of that because somebody can say the wildest thing, but you look at them and you know it's true. And somebody can say the same thing and you know it's not true. And the difference is the person behind it, right? And so uh, that was the kind of the training I received because I had to learn new language for a period of, of time in my life. I was kind of in a fog as far as the language is concerned. And so I started to pay attention to who was the person rather than what they were saying. Uh, and, you know, uh, and that taught me a lot. And a lot of my trust in working face to face with this initial phases, critical phases of the, a given community project. It's based on that, that you can look at each other and you can see, well, wait a minute, this is authentic. We need to pay attention to it. Or, or you can see a person's anger or you can see their their racism uh, show up, which would never in the words alone. But in their whole being, there is something that you start reading. You know, people who are scientists who are looking at cognitive kind of dynamics now say that more than 95% of our uh, cognitive processes are prelingual and prelogical. It's all based on that kind of a embrace of subtle communication that is nonverbal. And if that's true, right, uh, how do we ever unlock that wisdom of the 95% if we just deal with words. It, it occurs to me also that uh, in addition to the face-to-face conversations that are so much a part of your work, the next phase is we're going to dig a ditch together. We're going to carve wood together. We're going to, we're going to place mosaic pieces together, which is a continuation of that elemental human exchange that is not theoretical at all. We're, we're making a bench. Exactly. And, you know, deep down, 
everybody is an artist or wants to be one. Uh, you know, <laughs> a, a doctor wants to be a screenwriter, and and uh, an economist wants to be a poet, and 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 deep down, I think uh, this archetype of an artist is is kind of a it's the me little bit better connected with life. You know, and and I think so. There's something refreshing when people are given a permission to say, now just be an artist for a few days. Now we'll still work hard, we'll still dig ditch, ditches and you know, but but put that hat on that that's different than your professional identity. And so it goes a little bit deeper, I think, for people and, and, and start surfacing some some qualities that usually are not perceived. And I believe, Bill, that one of the things you mentioned, the trust that people gain in the process, I think it comes from the fact that suddenly I look at a person who I thought I knew, and they surprised me with new insights, new gifts. I didn't know you could carve. I didn't know you were a carpenter. I did not know that you can uh, mix concrete. You know, it's that kind of a thing. And it's new appreciation. It widens our understanding of each other rather than this professional roles that are a little bit like a billiard ball balls bumping into each other on the surface only. But this allows a journey that can go a little bit deeper. Now, I never talk about that because because if I would, some people will say, I don't want to be a part of that. You know, talking about advertising that is not wise. But designing the process, the structure of the event in such a way that it allows for that layer to surface is part of the secret that we've been learning people rubbing off on each other in profound ways. In profound Absolutely. And they stumble those rather than their you know, spoon-fed the meaning. I've never appreciated that when the meaning was forced upon, upon us. But I always appreciate the meaning that is discovered because then I own it. I uncovered it. I, I learned something. Those are, to me, profoundly democratic qualities, right? And if uh, think about democratic processes right now, how absent those qualities are from our decision-making, either on the local level or on the national level. So, Milenko, uh, for those people who are listening to this, who are thinking, wow, I would like to dip into this stream, your, you and Katja, the Pomegranate Center, are actively engaged in designing and presenting ongoing training in this work. How do people connect if they want to become actively engaged in, in the pomegranate process? So pomegranatecenter.org is our website, and it advertises all the, the work that we're doing. Uh, Katya is putting together kind of a, a virtual lab so people who are stuck in their community pro engagement processes can get help from anywhere in the world succeeding in that. So all this, Bill, is based on a very simple idea that, that we better start practicing it, uh, the concept of collaboration, to ask another person, what do you think, instead of convincing them what you think. Right? Just this little habits need to be actually nurtured. So in addition to that, 
uh, I write books. Uh, I wrote a, a little booklet called The Case for Everyday Democracy. Well, I can honestly say from my personal experience over, could I say, a couple of decades, that the usefulness of this way of working is manifest in dozens and dozens and dozens of communities where places have been built and people have been trained to apply these ideas to planning departments and and political systems and community development and community conversation. I I think some people might say, well, these are interesting ideas, but they're more than ideas. They are a a proven range of processes that have manifested in communities all across the United States and the world. And I really appreciate your coming to to talk to us about it. Okay. So final comment, Bill. Uh, Yes. I think that's the difference uh, that we tested this in hundreds of settings. This is not an academic idea. This has been tested. And I'm more convinced than ever that we live in those uh, these treacherous and wonderful in-between times right now. And the quality of this in-between time is that the music, the background, the understanding has changed but our habits have not. So we still dance to the music with old dance steps. And so it's absolutely vital to start learning the new dance, to be honest with, with the reality that we are facing right now. Um, and so so that's the context that, that right now something profoundly earth-shaking, literally <laughs> and metaphorically is happening. And unless we learn these new qualities, and apply them to daily activities, everybody has a chance to that, right? A staff meeting can be a mini kindergarten for learning collaborative practices and board meeting. That's what interests me right now is everyday democracy, how opportunities are everywhere and inviting us to rise to the occasion. And if we do, we create the foundation for much more thoughtful decision-making that is logical and, and it, it reflects itself in a, a political elections. But that's the foundation. That's the foundation from which the change will happen. So that's it, Bill. People are hungry for that, Milenko. They are. These are my principles. And Groucho Marx said, if you don't like them, I have others. <laughs> I know you do. I absolutely know you do. Thank you, Milenko. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And remember, The show notes for this episode and all other episodes include full transcripts of our conversations and links to all the references and resources mentioned. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It is written and hosted by me, Bill Cleveland. Our theme and soundscape are composed by Judy Munson. Stay safe, stay well, subscribe to this podcast, and please, please vote.